0: Fans make the network what it is. Thanks for listening, and we can't wait to hear from you. Find our listener survey at fableandfolly.com survey today. My name is Jonathan Pezza, and welcome to episode 11 of the weekly podcast, Pulp, where we are continuing our journey, one page at a time, through the literary underground of pulp fiction. In this episode, we are going to take our first look at a genre that is a thousand genres in one. Weird. Weird fiction is very hard to categorize, but you know it when you read it. And this type of story was wildly popular in the pulps. In the earliest days, Weird was a catch-all for the macabre, supernatural, and pseudoscientific. By the time the 1940s rolled around when Our Story Today was written, it became something else. A place to break conventions and experiment and create experiences that defy categorization. Marked only by their ability to present strange and sometimes twisted realities beyond our own. This odd character later became a media sensation in the form of TV shows like The Twilight Zone. And there is perhaps no better description of the genre than the one in the show's opening. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You are moving into a land of shadow and substance. Of things and ideas. You just crossed into weird fiction. Today's story is from a writer that Ray Bradbury called the neglected master. The man with a thousand pen names. Lewis Paget, Lawrence O'Donnell, Keith Hammond, C.H. Little, Kelvin Kent, Edwin J. Bellin, Peter Horn, Charles Stoddard, Scott Morgan, Rainer the Great, Bertram W. Williams, K.H. Maypen, Will Garth, Walton Gray, Paul Edmonds, Hudson Hastings and in today's story, as Noel Gardner. But all of them were actually a man from Los Angeles named Henry Kuttner. Born in 1915, Kuttner sold his first story, The Graveyard Rats, to Weird Tales in 1936. And over the next 22 years, published eight novels and at least 299 short stories. In 1940, he married fellow writer Catherine Louise Moore, someone we are definitely going to be featuring in future episodes. But it's said that after the two of them were married, it was almost impossible to tell where one began and the other ended, as the two collaborated on almost everything they worked on so fluidly that they were said to trade off their typewriter mid-paragraph and sometimes mid-sentence, seamlessly picking up where the other left off. Many of their collaborations were published under the pen name Lewis Paget, but it's likely that both of them played a role in every story both authors wrote after their marriage. Now Henry Kuttner sadly passed away in 1958 at the age of only 42, but not before he left his mark forever on science fiction, horror, and all things weird. Today's story is The Uncanny Power of Edwin Cobalt, and it was originally published in the October 1940 issue of Fantastic Adventure. This story has a sense of magical realism in the same vein as modern movies like Birdman, Bruce Almighty, Midnight in Paris, and many more. It is a seamless dive into the power of the mind, or at least one man's mind. So, without delay, sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. I'm naturally hard to convince. I doubt everything. In short, I'm the original man from Missouri. And one of the things that I felt came home to me as I lay back in my easy chair and stared at the surrealistic oil Susan had bought that day during some temporary aberration, if you can call that art. It was a mess of coiling green and purple serpentine shapes. I was tired after a hard day's work and my eyes were a bit out of focus. The picture wavered on the wall like a nightmare. Suddenly, with no more warning than that, I started to wonder if the picture was real. That travesty should never have been painted. I felt myself doubting its existence. Then, all of a sudden, it wasn't there. And there wasn't even a lighter patch on the wall to mark where it had been. I got up from the couch and went over to look. I had fallen asleep. And Susan had removed the thing. Probably odd. Susan came in from the kitchen, flushed and charming in a mild way. She's blonde and slim and fluttery. Soup's on, she said. Where's the picture? I asked. Did you take it? What picture? The surrealistic one, I pointed to the wall. Susan laughed dutifully and came over to me expecting to be kissed. What on earth are you talking about, Ed? You know we haven't had any surrealistic pictures. If you've thrown it out, I told her, kissing her at last, that's swell. Okay by me. You're crazy, the lady said and went back into the kitchen. I looked at the wall, but there was no mark of a nail to indicate where the picture had hung, nor could I find it around the apartment. Susan had cooked a steak and I could smell it, but when I went to lift the cover of the broiler, my wife slapped my hands and chased me away. I retreated to the bathroom, tidied myself up and began to think about illusions. Like the picture. Sometimes you imagine things are there and they're not. Magician's tricks. Like I might imagine there was a steak in the broiler when there really wasn't. The appetizing aroma, auto-suggestion. Sometimes I think too damn much. Imperceptibly I did it. I got around to wondering if there was a steak in the kitchen, and then I reached the point of doubting it. Susan called. Come on, Ed. Ready yet? I found her in the bedroom, tugging on an absurd hat. Aren't you ready? She asked. I'm ready, I said. Why the hat? Well, after all, we're going out to dinner. Unless you want to eat in a hamburger joint. Going out to dinner? I must have sounded surprised. I'm ready to tear into that steak. What steak? I took her by the hand and led her out to the kitchen and pointed to the broiler. That steak, I said, lifting up the lid. There wasn't anything under it, not even a speck of grease. The broiler grid was spotless. But French fries and spinach were cooked and ready. I showed them to Susan and she looked flabbergasted. Lordy, she said, I'm veering, why on earth did I cook those when I knew we were eating out? Look, I almost yelled, do you remember buying and cooking a steak? Not since last week, she said with the utmost certainty, we ate out, doubting Thomas indeed. I felt more certain about the picture now, but I felt very uncertain about other things. In the mirror opposite of our table booth, I scrutinized myself. Short, chunky, light-haired, ordinary-looking, I wasn't a magician. Anyway. anyway, I looked at the salt shaker and whispered, I doubt you exist. I don't get it, said Susan, reaching for the shaker. What's the point? There isn't any. I said. Either I had imagined things or the power was uncontrollable. I couldn't turn it on and off like a faucet. I ordered a drink and then another. We went to a nightclub. When we emerged, I was woozy. I wanted to call a cab, but Susan insisted on the sub. She likes to ride the subways when she's tight. I said, "Okay, the 69th Street station's only a few blocks away. As the crow flies... We didn't fly, we staggered. We got into Central Park somehow, indulged in an acrimonious argument with an elm, and finally emerged on 69th Street. We walked towards Broadway, but couldn't find it. So that was why I finally said, with some bitterness, I doubt if there's even a 69th Street station. Well, when we got to 69th and Broadway, there wasn't any subway station. The cop we asked said we were tight and there never had been a station there. If you know New York, you'll agree with him. I'm the only man in the world who remembers the 69th Street subway station. The cop called a cab and we went home. I woke up the next morning with a ghastly hangover and did hasty things with Worcester sauce and an egg yolk. Susan was still pounding her ear when I left. Trip hammers were roaring in my skull and I couldn't focus my thoughts, but I tried. Magic, miracles, willpower, something in me was changed, but how or why I couldn't say. It seems that if I doubted the existence of anything, that thing ceased to exist. And the power was retroactive, the thing had never existed. Maybe the world didn't exist and I was just dreaming it. I got to the Manhattan Vista building and went up to the law offices of Handrel and Son. Simon Handrel, a bulky old scoundrel with tonsured white hair, greeted me with pink well-managed cordiality. Morning, Ed. Those Hanscom Bonds are on your desk. Will you attend to them immediately? All right, I said and went into my office. My desk was smothered with stuff. I remembered that it was my birthday, and that the office staff politely deluged me with presents on that auspicious occasion. Papers and files were on the desk too. I scrambled through them, searching vainly for the hand bonds. No soap. It seemed opportune under the circumstances to curse the day I was born. I found an aspirin and washed it down, but I couldn't find the confounded bonds. My mind was utterly chaotic. The bonds, I thought, and then... What bonds? Hanscomb's bonds? Who's Hanscom? That old so-and-so in Brooklyn, what about him? The bonds? What bonds? It was all a plot to drive me nuts. Personally, I doubted whether the bonds had ever existed. I cleared my desk, found nothing, and returned to Handrel's office and exclaimed the situation. He blinked at me. Hanscom hasn't got any bonds, Ed. I thought you knew that. You must have him mixed up with someone else. I must have looked strange for Handrel clucked worriedly. Hang over. Why not take the day off? I need liquor, I said. Lots of it. So Handrel, who's a soak anyway, pushed back the papers on his desk and offered to take a quick one with me. He never misses a chance. We rode down in the elevator and popped into the bar. We hoisted several quick ones. I looked at Handrel. He was sympathetic and not so dumb. Maybe he could help me. If I hadn't been rather high, I'd never have thought so. Look, I said. Did you ever wonder whether we're real? Oh, sure. I mean it. I read a story once where a guy actually dreamed the world and everybody on it. Just a dream, everything was. And when he woke up, poof. Andrew seemed to find that very funny. He repeated it several times, giggling, Poof! <laughs> I glared at him, seeing a fat, complacent, stupid person satisfied with his sleek law office in the Manhattan Vista, that towering skyscraper. Unreal and far away. Did it exist? I felt drunkenly dubious. Then we were walking down the street beside an empty lot. A great many people were emerging from the lot and mingling quietly with the throng on the sidewalk. I recognized some of them. My co-workers in the Manhattan Vista building. Only, that remarkable skyscraper didn't exist. It never had existed. Do you remember it? Well, I do. It's great being a man of leisure, said Handrel, puffing on his cigar. What line did you say you were in, Ed? Law. I told him. I work for you. (laughs) Heh, that's a good one. But you can't entice me back into the game. When I retired, it was for good and all. I started to wonder about all the people who had worked in the Manhattan Vista building. Had they suddenly retired too? Or, I don't know. The unemployment statistics for this year are much higher. Maybe I threw a lot of people out of work. Only, of course, they never knew it. Their life patterns had changed completely, and their memories too. Retroactive obliteration. I would have to be careful. But I started to wonder about Susan somehow. I decided to go home and invited Handrel to go with me. It would cheer me to look at Susan's pretty familiar face. When we walked into the apartment, a dark man with chestnut hair was making love to my wife. The whole thing seemed pretty familiar to both of them. I recognized Ben. Handrel's son. And Handrel said something in a shocked, choking voice. Susan tore away and shrank back into a corner looking terrified and trapped. Ben moistened his lips and stood up. Facing me, his arms hanging loose at his sides. I don't know what he expected. Homicide, perhaps. Listen, Ed he got out. You don't. He stopped. Because I was just standing there, swaying a little, watching the two of them. Beside me, Handrel was making gasping noises. It had hit him pretty hard. He worshipped Ben, but I was seeing something else. Susan walks in the park, moonlight on the Hudson, blind romance in the night I proposed to her, the silly, dear little things that had made the apartment a home. The way she nibbled at her toast in the morning. The way she wrinkled her nose when she smiled. And now those things were suddenly seen with a different perspective. Susan. Ben. Standing there, guilty. shamefaced, afraid. I couldn't have been so idiotic. I couldn't have loved her or trusted him. They weren't real. They were gone. They weren't there. Susan and Ben were gone. "'Susan!' I shouted. Beside me, Handrel said, "'Susan, what's the big idea, Ed? I didn't know you had company.' He stared at me when I laughed. (laughs) "'I had company, Uh uh-huh. Handrel, you, oh lord.' I sank down on the couch and chewed my lips. He lifted gray eyebrows at me. Women are dangerous, Ed. To your reputation, at least. You ought to think about getting married. I said, do you have a son named Ben? There was a long silence. Then Handrel asked, very quietly, do you feel all right? I mean, it's not just the liquor, I I can see that. You're acting very strangely. I'm imagining things, I said. I imagined I had a wife named Susan, and you had a son named Ben. Only that isn't true, is it? I thought not. I got up, went to the sideboard and poured drinks. Susan kept her favorite handbag in the sideboard for some reason, I remembered. Only… of course it wasn't there. I poured the raw whiskey down my throat. Handrel passed out after a little while. I took him home in a taxi with two quarts in my pockets. I got blind, stinking, horribly drunk. And that night, I started to feel doubtful. Nothing was stable. Alcohol misted the outlines of everything. Remember the great Metropolitan Bridge across the Hudson at 72nd Street, built in 1934? Of course you don't remember it, but it existed, till I started feeling doubtful about it. Remember the Titania which docked in New York a few days before the Queen Mary? Biggest British steamboat in the world. A huge liner, a monster, a behemoth. But the Titania never was, except in my own memory. Remember? Hell, what's the use? You don't remember. You can't. But the only thing that saved the earth was good Scotch whiskey. For I commenced to feel doubtful about the earth and passed out in Central Park just before I got… too doubtful. That's all. I woke up, went home, and wrote this. I have the most frightful hangover anyone can imagine. And my ghastly power is still latent within me. What it is I cannot say. I sit here at my desk, exhausted my nerves jolting, my system temporarily poisoned by alcohol. I don't know what's going to happen, for nothing seems real to me. The clock on the desk before me? What clock? (sighs) Yes, it keeps on happening. Why should I doubt the reality of solid three-dimensional things that are obviously existing? I could reasonably have doubted intangibles like Susan's love for me or Ben's friendship and Susan, no one will believe she ever existed. And Ben, his father doesn't remember him, the Manhattan Vista building, the Titania, the Metropolitan Bridge. But is this phenomenon subjective or objective? Perhaps I'm the one at fault and the Titania and the bridge existed only in my mind. A physician would call me insane and he might be right. I don't know. It's, it's utterly crazy. It's all utterly crazy. This can't be happening to me. I can't be making things vanish by doubting their existence. But I, in the Lord's name, who or what am I? Edwin Cobalt? Who is Edwin Cobalt? Does anyone else see his fingers move rapidly over the typewriter keys? See his gray striped shirt covering his arms and chest? I look down at blue trousers, an unbuttoned vest, and a gray necktie. How much do the senses prove Seeing, hearing, touching, I'm beginning to doubt whether Edwin Cobalt exists. Author's note. This story is pure fiction. Edwin Cobalt is a product of my imagination, for, as will be self-evident, the actual existence of this manuscript disproves the theorem on which it's based. The obliteration power is retroactive, When Susan vanished, so did her clothes, her belongings, and everything closely connected with her. Naturally, if there was never a Susan Cobalt, there would be no place in the world for her handbag or her garments. Similarly, if Edwin Cobalt vanished, there would be no place in the world for a script written by him, a man who never existed. It is merely a coincidence that I just moved to an apartment near Central Park, which, the superintendent assures me, has been vacant for some time. It is quite impossible to suppose that Cobalt actually lived here, and that the superintendent simply forgot him. It is also ridiculous to suppose that my memory of writing this story is a convenient illusion. I, Noel Gardner, and not the non-existent Edwin Cobalt, must have written this script. I hope. This episode was co-produced by Melissa Starr. The music in today's episode was provided by EpidemicSound.com. We release a new episode almost every week, so make sure to subscribe for free on the platform of your choice, and if you can, leave us a five-star rating or review. Every bit helps us get the word out about the show. We also have a brand new website, www.pulpthepodcast.com, where you can learn more about the show and search episodes by genre and author. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Pulp the Podcast, or reach me directly via email at jonathan at pulpthepodcast.com. If you love science fiction and horror, please make sure to check out our sister podcast, The Curious Matter Anthology, which presents full cast audio dramas, including a five-part miniseries adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Tale of War, Brotherhood, and Robots, Second Variety. You can find The Curious Matter Anthology at www.curiousmatterpodcast.com, via the link on our website or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jonathan Pezzi, your host, and thank you for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.